This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the Think Again podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. I'm very, very happy to be here today with Adam Alter. Uh, Adam is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Drunk Tank Pink, and other unexpected forces that shape how we think, feel, and behave. And he's written for the New York Times, New Yorker, Atlantic, Wired, Slate, Washington Post, and other publications. Uh, He's an associate professor of marketing at New York University and also teaches in the psychology department. His fascinating and chilling new book, Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked, has, among other things, convinced me to stop charging my cell phone in my bedroom. Welcome to Think Again, Adam. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Yeah, and I'm not joking about that. Actually, Good. <laughs> literally, literally, as a result of reading your book, I now am charging my, my cell phone in the kitchen. And just prior to that, had deleted Facebook from it as well, which has actually significantly improved my life. I'm impressed. <laughs> a lot of people read the book and they say this is scary and then they don't do much about it. But uh, charging your phone outside the bedroom is one of the easiest things you can do. And, and it has a huge effect on your well-being. It's likely to improve your sleep dramatically. Yeah, I mean, people don't do anything about it because they're addicted, right? And that's yeah. sort of the nature of addiction, right, is, is denial to some extent. Yeah, to a large extent, that's true. <laughs> I think the, the beauty of this kind of addiction, though, is that you can intervene. There are a lot of things you can do that are really easy, like changing how many hours in the day you can't reach your phone without moving your feet. Right. So, you know, so much of the day, if you ask people, if you ping them, even at like 3 a.m., 4 p.m., 12 p.m., right. they'll say, I can reach my phone right now. I don't need to move. It's a good way of measuring whether you're doing a good job of weaning yourself is at any moment in time, can you say honestly that you'd have to walk to get your phone? And what you're doing by charging it outside the bedroom is you're saying for, say, eight hours of the day, the answer is yes. And that's great. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how little, like, of all of the messages and all the pings and all of the things that one receives, like, over the course of 24 hours, how few of those really need to be addressed imminently. I mean, it's almost none usually yeah like there's a recent study of email actually suggesting that um only about five to ten percent of the emails we receive need to be addressed within five to ten minutes and yet in the workplace people address 70 percent of emails they read them within six seconds right so that suggests we treat them with a degree of urgency that's not really warranted we could spend half an hour or an hour or two hours or a day not checking email the world would go on yeah so maybe we could talk a little bit about the kind of addiction that we're talking about, sort of how addiction operates in general. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, behavioral and substance addiction are in a lot of ways quite similar. Substance addiction we've known has existed for many thousands of years. It's the idea that there are certain substances that we enjoy taking in the short term. We take them compulsively. And as a result, they affect our well-being negatively in the long run. That's right. the basic definition of a substance addiction. 
it turns out that behavioral addiction that doesn't involve the ingestion of a substance is much, much newer. And it's much newer because the behaviors we engage in now have to some extent been weaponized by the producers of those behaviors. Right. The people who create the platforms that they then send out to us. So I'd say behavioral addiction in a mainstream way has only existed for a short time, maybe two decades. Gambling certainly existed before that. It's the one exception. But apart from gambling, maybe 40 to 50% of us, according to research now, have at least one of these behavioral addictions, and that's a new phenomenon. So, but addiction, like, uh, you know, there are a couple of interesting things that you say about addiction in the book. One is that it has something to do with, more to do with relief from pain yeah. and anxiety than it does with pleasure. We think of it as, you know, some kind of hedonism in a way, but... Yeah, people talk about the difference between wanting and liking. We used to think of addiction as really liking something, like you really love the drug so you keep taking it. Mm. And it turns out that's a really important distinction, this distinction between liking and wanting. And neuroscientists have shown that there's a completely different part of the brain involved in wanting from the part involved in liking. Right. Wanting is incredibly robust. When you want something that doesn't decay very fast, when you like something, that's very changeable, it's kind of fickle. So when you love someone and they're not good for you, you very quickly stop liking them, but you continue to want them. And that's really what drugs are like. If you ask people who are addicted to heroin, they don't say, oh, I love it, it's fantastic. They say, I really want this thing. I ha There's nothing I can do to stop wanting it, even as I hate it. Right. And so addiction is about really wanting something. It's not about liking it. Sometimes we do like things we're addicted to, but very often there's a, a disjunction between the two. You have wanting without liking. And the harm, you know, the harm that is essential to the idea of addiction, in the case of things like cell phones and emails, it's about the fact that they disrupt our relationships, they disrupt productivity. You had, you cited a study in the book, which was really shocking to me, where they basically had people meeting each other in a room and a, yeah. an inert phone, like it was not even on, I guess, or at least they, nobody was using it. And it significantly affected the quality of the connections they were able to establish. Yeah, it's a staggering finding. It's this idea that when two people are in a room, they're meeting for the first time, they're having a discussion and trying to form a relationship. If there's a phone, and a phone given all its promise of the outside world, right. it draws them away from the here and now, and it diminishes the connection they form. Right. So just an inert phone can do that, which gives you a sense of how damaging these experiences can be when we truly engage with them, and how much they disrupt our social worlds. Yeah, but so what's interesting here though, right? So I had at one point I had uh, Alison Gopnik on this show mm -hmm. who's, a, who's a developmental psychologist. You know, and her, her take on all of this was a lot more kind of, well, you know, in every generation there is new technology and, you know, every generation gets upset about the, the new technology, but in fact, the new technology is a language and a set of codes that the new generation is learning. Mm -hmm. um, and you've recently had a baby, I believe, right? Or, yeah, well, yeah, he's uh, he's 11 months old. He's 11 yeah. months now, so you're you're right <laughs> up in the middle of this stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know, like one never quite knows where to come down on that question of am I being am I ringing the bell of doom yeah. unnecessarily? But your book rings the bell of doom, like pretty pretty heavily on a lot yeah, of this I, stuff. I, I yeah, I ring that bell pretty hard, yeah. <laughs> I, you know what, I don't, that's not my intention. I think I, as I see it, it's, I'm a scientist, as is Alison Gopnik, and it's, it's my intention to discuss what I think is an objective fact. Right. And that is that there are qualitative differences between the new forms of tech that we're engaging in now and whatever came before. And the pace 
with which these forms of tech are developing is only increasing. So there has never been any other device that so consistently traveled with us and removed us from the here and now as a smartphone does. And when you talk to virtual reality experts, they say that within four to five years, we'll all have our own virtual reality goggles that will travel with us wherever we go. To me, though I have immense respect for Alison Gopnik and her ideas, I think that's different from anything we've seen before. Television was damaging, but at the end of the day, kids went to school. Right. And they left the television behind. They right, had right. no choice. And if you leave something behind, it can't grip you all the time. You can be distracted and imagine it and think about it and daydream. But if, if a virtual reality goggle come, goes with you wherever you are, at any moment in time, you're basically faced with a decision. Do you want to exist in this imperfect, real, messy world? Or at any moment, you could just put this goggle on, these goggles on, and you'll exist in the perfect virtual world. Who wouldn't do that? That's all about seeking well-being. It's what humans do. And I think it's going to be harder and harder for us to say, you know what, I'm not going to seek gratification right now. I'm going to say that it's better for me in the long run to stay in this imperfect real world. I think it's becoming harder and harder to do that. I mean, I suppose it will be impossible once there, you know, once there are sort of, if indeed there are chips in our brains at some point, yeah, you know, and sort of cyber <laughs> enhancements. And um, well, that's the end game, right? And that's really concerning. Indeed. And so the question is, I mean, but the question is, right? You know, then if the things aren't going anywhere and we're not do, we're not pulling a Thoreau and like moving to to the woods, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, right. Um, then you know, how do we like a? How do we live well with these things? And b? Like you know, is there a way that these things can be beneficial in our lives as opposed to just something we try to not get addicted to? And I guess that's harder and harder because, as you say, the companies are becoming more and more sophisticated about addicting us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we can return to the question of, um, of what we can do for the good. But um, this question about what we can do about the problem, I, I think there's still a huge amount we can do. I think we're, this is in its infancy. Uh, Facebook is only about 13 years old. It feels right. like it's been around for a long time. That's not a very long time. No. We're going to look back in 10 years at Facebook as some sort of curious relic. And in fact, if you talk to teens, they already see Facebook that way. So things are developing really, really fast. I would argue that we still are early enough in this process and in the evolution of this form of these kinds of tech that we can intervene at least on the norms, the way we perceive tech and the way it's produced. Right. So, you know, if you think about nicotine, there was a time in the 50s and 60s where we didn't really hold the cigarette companies accountable, although they knew what they were doing was wrong. I think there's, a, there's an analogy to be drawn to the companies that produce the tech that we consume. Gotcha. There, there needs to be something like a Hippocratic oath for producers of tech. That just as doctors are told you should do no harm, that's the, the golden rule, there should be a golden rule in producing tech. That essentially you should be bringing more benefit to the lives of the users than you should detriment. And right now, I don't think there is that norm. I don't think anyone's holding anyone in the tech world accountable. That's interesting. And that and, should change. In some ways, because the addictions, for the most part, are more insidious and yeah. less visible than something like be being an alcoholic, it's more difficult. You would need to get buy-in from the industry on the, you know, and from the medical community on the whole. Yeah, so I totally agree with that. I mean, I think heroin addiction very quickly means that you're not a functioning member of society. Nicotine addiction, the reason why it was so okay for cigarette companies to produce for a long time was because it was also insidious. Right. It, you didn't see the long-term effects until people had been smoking a pack a day for 20 years. The same is true of behavioral addiction, and I would argue that there are kids today who are disengaging from the social world during these critical periods of maturation when they should be learning 
hey, it turns out, don't take the toy from that other kid because it's not going to work out well for anyone. Right. If they don't learn those lessons when they're one, two, three, four, and five because they're in front of a screen, they're never going to learn them because there are critical periods. Once you That's escape true. that critical period, you may never acquire that skill. And that means when you go to the workplace, when you're a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, you're going to be a, a different kind of human from the kinds of humans that existed in the past. Interesting. Yeah. So are you going to at some point have to become like a full-time crusader for ethics and this stuff? I don't know. I, I didn't see it going that way. But uh, more and more as I talk to people, I realize that it's, it does have these strange parallels with the substance abuse world where yeah. we do hold people who produce nicotine accountable now. We do hold people who create alcohol ads to entice teens accountable. Right. We, there's nothing like that for, for the games that are produced for kids. No, right. no one holds anyone accountable on that front. They don't hold anyone accountable when they produce apps or you know, pretty much anything that's digital that we find hard to resist. Now, maybe it's because the effects are insidious. They take longer to have a, take a real hold on us. Maybe they're not as severe, but in aggregate across time, I think they will be. And I think that's something that we should certainly consider. I'm not sure if legislation is the answer, but there are parts of the world where that's what's happening now. So in East Asia, for example, right. there are so-called Cinderella laws that prohibit children from playing games between 12 p.m. and uh, 12 a.m. and 6 a.m. between midnight and 6 a.m. How are those enforced? I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. You know, it's it's one of those the toothless are like thing. In yeah. Your house, yeah, they sort of peer through the windows and just make sure there are no glowing screens in the house. I don't know how they enforce them. I don't even know if they're really in wide wide operation and enforcement. Right. But, but the idea is interesting that the government is starting to get involved. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, you're, you teach at Stern School of Business in the marketing department. Yes. Yeah. Now, marketing to me, like, is the original addictive technology in a sense. I mean, that basically it has spent the last several decades getting more and more psychologically sophisticated at manipulating people into buying stuff that they may or may not need or want, right? Absolutely. So yeah. how does that work for you in that world? Like, I mean, you know. I, I think it means that I'm exposed to it more than other people are. I have okay. a better sense of what's going on. I know the extent to which companies reach out for behavioral advice. They want to know from people who study human psychology, how do I make this game not just fun to play in the first five minutes, but fun to play for a, a year and then a decade? How do I know that people will buy the sequel and so on? And the marketing world is the world where that happened first. And it's certainly still happening. You have clickbait, which is yeah. all about marketing. Clickbait is a relatively new phenomenon, but it's just perfectly designed to capture humans. So one thing that clickbait does is it rests on the back of these headlines that open up a loop for you that, that won't be closed until you click on the link. Right. Humans hate half a story. Interesting. So like any cliffhanger, we want to know what the answer is. What's the, what's the resolution? The only way we come to that resolution is by clicking seems like a small cost to pay for getting the answer. But then you get there and then there are like 17 screens of a slideshow. All the while, every, every click provides money to the person who released that, unleashed it onto the world. You end up losing a few minutes, but that is marketing at its core. It's about understanding what it is about human psychology that makes us compelled to do something. Right, right. I mean, is it possible, is ethical marketing in the sense of marketing that is somehow good for humans or okay for humans at least possible in this environment of constant attention you know deficit you know, the, yeah like i mean things must compete for attention right so yeah i mean you, there are two ways of approaching this the one is that we all need to be as consumers protecting ourselves and so the best thing to do is to understand what is it these companies are doing and how can i pre prevent myself from 
becoming hooked on whatever content they're releasing into the world. Part of that is understanding what those hooks are and then trying to blunt them and make sure they right. don't get a hold. But then from the company side, you know, a lot of what companies do that is ethical rests on pressure from the public. And pressure from the public comes from understanding and knowledge. The fashion industry, for example, for a long time had a lot of young girls who were losing a ton of weight. They weren't going to school because that's what the fashion industry demanded. Now there's enough pressure in the fashion industry that girls have to be at school for a certain hour, they have to be a, a certain weight and height and so on, right. so they're encouraged to be healthy. That's not because the fashion industry is altruistic, it's because they were pressured into that. Sure. It's true about every industry. So caveat emptor on the one hand, but at the same time, like these industries you know, and marketing departments have extraordinary amounts of intellectual firepower and yes. money behind them, plus psychological research, et cetera. So, you know, it's not as if the average Joe and Jane necessarily are equipped with the tools to keep outsmarting them. I mean, that, that's their whole raison d'etre. Is to I totally agree. Us. I totally agree. I think. That, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm where you live. I mean, you're in that. Yeah. You're in, you know, I'm, I'm. But, but you're teaching marketing. Yeah. I mean, like. Oh, you mean from the from the individual perspective? No, no. I mean, a little of both. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, this is. Uh, so I have a PhD in psychology, and now I teach marketing. And what's interesting for me is over the last, I've been teaching what now? It's eight years. Mm. My thinking on marketing has changed. At first, I didn't realize how sophisticated it was. And I got mm. more deeply immersed into that world through engagement with companies that were using the tricks of the trade. And with I like realized- data from Facebook. Yeah, and, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, and we, we get hold of a lot of that data and run studies and so on. And it's made me, a different consumer of that kind of information. So mm. as a marketing professor, there are different kinds of marketing you can do. One kind is the traditional, can I sell a bar of soap to everyone who should be cleaning themselves? And even to people who shouldn't. <laughs> I wanna, you wanna sell as much as you can. I'm not really interested in that. I'm, try, I'm sort of much more interested, as this book is, is how can we change the way businesses and consumers interact to enhance the benefit that consumers get from products? And actually, in the long run, that's good for businesses. And I, I can give you an example of this in sure, this world. Sure. So in the food world, one of the things that I've always found fascinating for its irrationality is that people will pay a ton of money for 100 calorie packs. So you can get these snack packs of cookies and they're very expensive. So you're, you're buying these little pre-packaged 100 calorie packs of food. Mm. The reason we will pay companies so much for these small packs of food instead of buying cheaper, larger packs in bulk is because we're paying them as an, a way of outsourcing self-control. Right. I know that if I buy a huge jar of cookies, I'm not going to be able to eat just 100 calories, so I will pay the company to prepackage them that way. And I think there may be a lesson there for the way tech companies operate. I think if tech companies produced a version of what they do that is healthier for us, better for us, we may even pay, pay a small premium. Imagine Facebook releasing a version of its platform that you pay five bucks a year for. It has enough users that that's going to amount to a lot of money. Right. That version, because it won't rely as much on advertising, that's why we're paying the five bucks, that version might be demetricated. So there's already a Facebook demetricator. What mm. it does, it's an app that you can use as a sort of plugin and it stops telling you how many likes you have, how many comments have been shared. Okay. And what you're doing by removing those numbers is you're taking the granular feedback that people return for compulsively over and over again and you're making it binary. You're saying you have a like or you have some likes or you have some okay. comments, you have some shares and it's that stuff that makes it so difficult to resist. And if you remove those hooks, the company would make more money that way. Consumers would have a better interaction and relationship with the platform. That's certainly one thing to explore. It's not perfect. Right. But the idea that there is a harmony to be reached, I think, is an interesting one worth exploring. 
So it requires, uh, it would require a combination of consumer pushback mm -hmm. and maybe, although I would not rely on this, first of all, ethical decision making at the top of companies for the sake thereof. I mean, Adam Smith, like, you know, who is, of course, the darling of the people who, you know, who are really focused on the free market, was very clear about the dangers of unfettered capitalism Absolutely. and said that companies are going to take care of themselves, you mm -hmm. know, and they they are. I mean, especially if, if it's a for-profit company with shareholders, they, they've got to sell as many bars of soap as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, <laughs> yeah, totally agree. And I think there are two kinds of books. Well, there are lots of kinds of books, but <laughs> in this space, there are two kinds of books. There's the kind of book that says, here's a problem, here are 17 solutions, go on your way and enjoy. Yeah. That is not this book. And yeah. it's not this book because it happens to have been written at a time where you cannot say that. I don't think there are ready solutions. Right. It's funny, the most interesting and consistent critique I get with this book is that people say, you've painted a really interesting picture of the problem. It seems like a legitimate problem, I'm convinced, but you don't tell us what to do about it. And it, it's naturally kind of speculative. I don't really know what all the answers are. I have a lot of ideas. Right. What I'm trying to do is start that conversation, to have people engage with the question. There are a lot of very smart people, a lot who are smarter than I am, and who understand the world better than I do, this particular world who I hope will become engaged with the question. It resonates with people. You talk to almost anyone and they say, you know what, I kind of wish I had a better relationship with tech, that it was a bit more yeah. sustainable. So I think someone somewhere will engage and hopefully there'll be more people talking about it and we'll find a way to, to encourage companies to do the, the better thing for us. Yeah, I mean, well, what your book does is, uh, among other things, is paint a very, very clear and specific picture of the ways in which you know, the mechanisms of addiction, of behavioral right. addiction, which which is extremely valuable for anyone living in this world now. So, yeah, I mean, I, I found it very useful. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I, on that note, let's, shall we go to the second part of the show where we see yeah, the surprise let's do it. videos and see where Looking I have forward no, to it. no idea what they are, but they, okay. Let's begin with, would you vote for a psychopath? Oh, nice. <laughs> okay, this is Would You Vote for a Psychopath by James Fallon, neuroscientist who studies psychopathy. Excellent. As as I know. This team of researchers asked the biographers, the really top biographers for all the presidents, almost up to the president, and said, rate them on this psycho psychopathic scale, and they did. Right at the top was Teddy Roosevelt, then FDR, then JFK, Bill Clinton was right up there. People really low on the, very low in psych psychopathy, like Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, uh, George Bush Sr., very low psychopathy. George Bush's son is kind of in the middle. The thing is, is that if you look at what people consider leadership, who am I gonna follow? They pick the people at the top. They're picking and voting for and enjoying uh, the, the psychopathic traits. Because those are the people that you think are, are the ones who can lead you. And in, and in fact, these are, you know, psychopaths are known for really being world champ liars, pathological liars, even for the hell of it, right? And so if you look at uh, people at the top of the presidential list, they did in fact lie. But the thing is, they lied for us. They lied to protect us. And people, for some reason, don't seem to mind psychopathic behavior when it's done on their behalf. You would also think, people would say, well, God, you know, Hitler and all those Nazi leaders must have been psychopaths. And yet the analysis by many, many psychiatrists over the years, uh, Hitler does not come up as a psychopath, and none of those Nazis do at all. They're all family men. They're all um, 
very, they were all very smart, and they thought they were doing their job. And that's why Hannah Arendt, you know, when she talked about this, she didn't call it psychopathy. The way she analyzed it is that people will get into a position and they're just little pieces of a bigger organization. And that organization is evil, right? It's the banality of evil is what she called it. But each individual's role is sort of hidden. I think what's so fascinating about psychopathy is that I think what we are doing with children today and exposing them to screens and not exposing them to the social world means that they will start looking a little bit more like these psychopaths that you see out in the world at large who are very unusual today. There aren't that many of them who are truly psychopathic in a clinical sense as I understand it. Right. But and by that we sort of mean, like, I mean, just for the audience, we, we sort of mean uh, lacking empathy, yeah. using other people primarily for their As own instruments purposes. For their ends. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. for their own ends. So I, I think what's interesting is I've never framed it this way, and I'm not sure the term is the right term. <laughs> right. But we're basically raising a generation of proto-psychopaths where they, they're becoming a little bit more like what you would think a psychopath would be, just not because they're bad people, not because they were born with some deficiency, but because of the way they're maturing is so asocial. It's just not in the face and presence of other people. Now, the way you learn not to use other people as means for your ends right. is by doing that when you're a kid, when you're a baby, when it's kind of acceptable, you take some toy from a kid or you push a kid because it's good for whatever outcome. And you learn that that's not the right thing to do and you feel bad about it. Now, if you never in that critical period learn to feel bad about these things, you become a natural bully and you, you don't really think of people as people. Um, Louis C.K. has talked about this in one of his, his bits. Right. And of course, I'm nowhere near as funny as Louis, but the way <laughs> he does it, I remember laughing. It's not going to be funny the way I describe it, but he talks about his daughters and watching them interact and watching them interact online about how they bully other kids or there are other kids who bully them. And he, he sees them not really getting the feedback that they need. They don't see the scrunching up of the face, the tears pouring right. out. And as a result, they, they don't learn that that's not okay. The kids of his, his daughter's generation just don't learn that it's not okay to do that stuff because you need that feedback. You know, I mean, it's funny to watch somebody on TV falling on a banana peel. You know, in real life, they might end up in the hospital. Right, exactly. You know, there's a lot of shades of gray between alt-right Nazi trolling right. and just everyday kind of callousness totally on the agree. internet. Yeah. yeah, you think of drone operators, for example. What they're doing is obviously... They, they are cogs in the machine of war and the, the machine of death, but they're removed from what they're doing. They're pushing a button and they're watching right. something happen on a screen far away. And that physical distance is absolutely critical in enabling them to do that. If they had to stand next to the person or people they were killing and watch them die, it'd be very different. You need that physical contact to do the right thing. It's much easier to do the wrong thing, as Hannah Arendt said, the banality of evil arises because you feel like you're just this little cog in a machine and that you're doing the right thing in this very narrow, isolated sense. If you thought about more broadly what you were doing and you could see its effects, right? people wouldn't do the same things they're doing in, in these stories. Have you encountered uh, Dana Boyd's research? I like, haven't, no. So she's, a, she's like Harvard, I, or used to be Berkman Center for Internet and Society, right. and did all kinds of research into the social lives of teens online. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, I think her big takeaway was kind of like, to put it very bluntly, was problematizing this and saying, well, actually teens are leading these incredibly rich and complex and involved lives right. online that are just not quite visible to you or that the codes aren't understandable to parents. I'm you know? willing to believe that, but when you ask teens if they're happy, 
a third of them say, not only am I unhappy, but I feel deeply unhappy with my, the life that I'm experiencing. More than that, if you ask psychiatrists today, I actually had a conversation with one this morning. He said to me, did you know that the demographic with the fastest rise in suicides is 10 to 14 year old girls? And he said, we don't know exactly why, but a lot of us in the, in the profession believe that it's partly associated with their interaction with tech, with their interaction with social networks, right. with the remoteness with which they interact with other people, which allows that kind of bullying, that kind of negative negativity and nastiness that you wouldn't see face to face. So yes, there is a rich complexity. We don't understand the codes, but if you ask them face to face in a very plain way, do you like what's going on in your life? A lot of them will say no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, both callousness on the one hand and also isolation are right. possible. I mean, do do we know if this obtains like cross-culturally? Like, is this the case in Japan, for example, as similar, you know? Like, yeah, it seems to be worse in, in Japan, yeah. in China, in Korea. Those are the countries, Korea and China in particular, are the countries with the biggest problem among teens. Uh, it's gaming more than just the internet uh, at large, uh -huh. but it is a huge, huge issue. So much so that in China they have these almost militaristic camps. They'll take kids there, they'll leave them there for four months, they're inpatients, they wear military fatigues, they march every day through wow. the snow ne if necessary. <laughs> and, and they are treated by psychiatrists who are trying their best to apply a medical model to treating gaming disorder. I, I wouldn't advocate that. I don't think it's the way we should do it. I don't think we should medicalize these issues. I think mm. they're a cultural malady and they need to be treated at the level of norms and culture changing and changing the way this stuff is produced. Right. But it's interesting that this seems to be cross-cultural. You give people access to these platforms, doesn't matter where they are, doesn't matter exactly how they interact with the tech, it seems to be a problem for them. Are studies already being done on primates and this stuff? I'm curious, like if you, you know, had primates yeah. interacting primarily through touch screens or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you can go even further. So you know it's a problem when you have it in humans and rats. I mean, we've rats. got, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So yeah. Yeah, there are studies with rats. There's a little rat casino and uh, these researchers basically put these rats in a casino and what they had was they had this little button they had to push and they had a series of buttons they could choose from. Some of the buttons gave them certain delivery of pellets that right. they liked eating. Some of them gave them a bit of uncertainty. They didn't know what they were gonna get. Some of them punished them. So some of the buttons meant that you couldn't push any other button for a few seconds, which to a rat is an eternity. So these buttons have different outcomes. What they found was most rats go towards the certain thing. They like getting certain food, even if it's not the best delivery. Maybe it's only two pellets instead of 10 on the, the gambling one, the machine okay. that's uncertain. If, as soon as you attach lights and sounds to the process, especially to the ones where there's some uncertainty, you turn it into a slot machine in effect, suddenly the rats are risk-seeking. They're all about gambling. Interesting. And that's what humans are like as well. You give them what gamers call juice. The juice is in the lights and the sounds and the feedback and they're suddenly really engaged. And we're seeing that even in rats. You talk a little bit about gaming, handheld gaming, like yourself, you know, some getting addicted to like, I don't know, it wasn't Candy Crush Saga, but Tetris. And yeah, exactly. I, you know, I've, over the years, there've been a couple of instances. I mean, I can recall playing Diablo 2. Right to the point where I literally was like hallucinating the enemy, you know, yeah. in front of me like the, the next morning. I mean, I'm not really sure where, where I'm going with this. I played a bit of World of Warcraft too. I could binge to that occasionally to that extent. It never interfered with my life. Or and I kind of yeah. realized I didn't like it, but the trade-off was sort of worth it. But right, exactly. there's that guy in your book you talk about who like, which I couldn't believe that this was 
act, I mean, I believed it, but I couldn't <laughs> believe that this was real. That yeah. This guy's so addicted to World of Warcraft that it basically like destroyed his life, yeah. derailed his career. He's not alone. I mean, there are a lot of people. I think World of Warcraft, people sometimes say, what's the single most addictive behavioral experience? And I think it may be World of Warcraft in its entirety. I, I spoke to a, a game design expert. He's created a number of hit games, and yeah. he's a professor at NYU in the Game Design Center. He told me his job is to play all the culturally significant games. Right. Makes sense. He's got to teach people about these games. He says he has never played World of Warcraft because he's heard too much about it. He knows too much about how right. addictive it is, and he knows himself well enough to know that if he puts himself in the way of temptation, he will lose hours, maybe days, maybe months, maybe years to the game. And it's true, the guy you mentioned before, he's one of many, many people, by some estimates, half of all players of World of Warcraft develop some form of dependency on the game. This guy's the extreme example. He played for five weeks in a row. Yeah. He had the doorman, this is while he was in college, he had the doorman in the building bring up food. He brought up pizza three times a day. So he paid the doorman a tip, and the doorman would bring up pizza that he'd ordered. At one point, I think he wore a diaper. He didn't want to leave the screen. God. He slept for about an hour a day on average, and he did this for five weeks straight. He put on 40 pounds of fat, lost a lot of hair, developed skin disorders. I mean, it was, it was a pretty profound experience for him. That's an extreme version, but there are a lot of other people who experience something similar. What's interesting about him is that he, you know, his problem was in some ways at least engendered by the opposite of what we're describing. He was looking for social connection. He yes. liked the guild system and the people that he played with online. Exactly. Right? And so in some ways it destroyed his life through the promise of social connectivity, which is the very thing that it, it tends to destroy for right. many people. Yeah. yeah, no, there's a there's a horrible irony there. Basically, you know, if you imagine people being addicted just by being exposed to an experience or substance, you would assume that everyone who ever gets surgery and gets those like choice grade opiates when they're being treated for pain right. in the hospital would develop a major addiction. And that's just not what happens. And that's because addiction is not just about the experience of taking the drug or being near the experience or having the experience. It's about soothing some psychological need as well. So people are much more likely to form addictions when they're lonely, when they've been bullied, when they don't feel like they have agency in the world, when they can make the things happen in the world that they want to make right. happen. This guy in particular was lonely, and for him, this was where he found social support. Of course, it destroyed his ability to form real-world associations with people outside of the game, but it, the reason it became so addictive was because he suddenly had these deep, rich, enduring friendships with other game players in, in his guild. Right. And he needed to be up 24 hours a day because half of them were not anywhere near the United States. They were in Europe or in Asia or in Australia or in South America. They were in different time zones having different life experiences and he felt like as though he were at war, he needed to be available to sort of go band of brothers. They all needed to be available at all times. And in the end, like kicking his addiction meant moving to a different state. And that was one of the most fascinating things to me in the book was that the fact about the Vietnam vets who apparently became addicted to a very high-grade, pure heroin yeah. in large numbers, and some extraordinary percentage of whom were able to kick it when they came back to the U.S. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about like why? Yeah, what what's going on there? Because I I don't fully understand it. Yeah, no, it's a staggering thing, and it really confused people at the time. So Vietnam, we often think of war as being just high-paced action, exhaustion, and so on. But for a lot of the vets, for a lot of the time, it was boring. They didn't have much to do. They played a bit of baseball. They drank a bit. They did a few other things. But what ended up happening was because of that boredom, 
they were susceptible to, to drug taking. And right. around that time in the Golden Triangle, around that region of the world, in that part of Southeast Asia, heroin production was being was improving. And so there was a new kind of cocaine, known, uh, sorry, heroin known as heroin number four. And it was, it was basically 99% pure. And so the people who were producing it realized there was this captive market that had a lot of money. So they gave these vets vials of heroin. The vets tried it because it was free and then they kept coming back for more. Right. And one of the things that happens with heroin is that 95% of people, when they try to go off it, relapse at least once, and many of them relapse many times. Eventually, most of them get off it, but for a while, they can't quite kick the habit. And so there was this big concern that when these vets came back to the United States, they'd bring back a drug dependency issue, and there were up to 100,000 of them. And so there was this concern that there was going to be this huge drug ep epidemic, right. that they'd start trying to sell it to kids in schools and so on, that it was going to be a public health disaster. And so Richard Nixon very famously went on TV and said, we have a war on drugs to deal with. It's right. not just a war in Vietnam, it's a war on drugs. Turns out this was unwarranted, this fear, because what happened was these people came back from Vietnam, they were reimmersed in their lives, and most of them were okay. There was a 5% relapse rate, 90% lower than usual, which is staggering. And the, the, the I question, find that extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, can't, can that, so you, that's about context, you say, in the book. And yeah. the fact, but I mean, like... Surely many of them had PTSD, many of them had, you know, very serious anxieties they'd like to be free from. Yeah. You know, can it, can that not be traced to the fact that it was harder to get heroin here or, or I mean, you no, know, certainly it's part of it, yeah. but but a lot of them detoxed very fast and never wanted to go back to it. One of the biggest issues we know when treating drug dependency is that when people go back to the scene of the crime, yeah. they talk to the same friends, they go to the same houses they were in, they go to the same neighborhoods. Yeah. All of that basically is a cue. It rekindles those same ideas. It reminds them of what it was like to take the drug. If you were in the steamy summers of, of Vietnam and you were around a different kind of vegetation with different people in a different context, it was wartime, then you go back to the pedestrian mundanity of life with family, having dinners and with social support and so on. Right. You never have that need rekindled. You're never reminded of that because the setting is just in every way profoundly different. Right. It was a great natural experiment because when else do people with a drug dependency go to such a profoundly different place? Now, you mentioned this guy that had this World of Warcraft dependency. The only way he kicked it was by moving from the East Coast to Washington state where he now lives and basically refuses to come back to the side of the country. He's doing basically what those Vietnam vets did and it's been really successful so far. Right, right. It'd be like being Amish and suddenly <laughs> like go, putting on a punk outfit or something. Yeah, it's interesting. You ask people who are, who are Amish, don't you miss tech? And they're like, what are you talking about? I have a very rich life. I'm colorblind. And people say to me, oh, it must be really rough being colorblind. My whole life is this. It is this, and it, yeah. as far as it goes, it's pretty rich. You I can, miss what you know. You yeah. miss what you know. And so if, if your whole world is digital, you'll really miss that when you don't have it anymore. If your whole world is, yeah, yeah. is not, you won't miss it much when you, when you leave the digital world. It's funny. You made the obvious analogy about with the Amish in terms of them being like no-tech, low-tech. Yeah. What I was thinking of was more like excommunication from oh, the community. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, right. but right, I mean, both apply, actually. Right, yeah. yeah. So shall we, shall we see what the next surprise please, video is? Please. Yeah, I think we have time for one more. Okay, great. Let's do that. So let's go with, oh, this should be interesting. This is Margaret Atwood, the author. One on of my favorites. Anti-intellectualism and anti-science. If you look at them, 
the history of what happened to Darwin when he published. <laughs> what would you call that? <laughs> yes, he was hugely attacked uh, at the time. And it's often a case of people do not want to give up their cherished beliefs, especially cherished beliefs that they find comforting. So it's no good for Richard Dawkins to say, you know, let us stand on the bold bare promontory of truth and, you know, acknowledge the basically nothingness of ourselves. Uh, it, people, people don't find that cozy. So they will go around the block not to do that. That's very understandable and, and human. And religious thinking, you know, the, the idea that there's somebody bigger than you out there who, who might be helpful to you um, if certain rules are observed. That goes back so far. It's probably, we probably have an epigene or something, or a cluster of epigenes for that. And you see it a lot in, in small children, you know, that there is a monster under the bed, and, and you can't tell them there isn't. They don't find that reassuring. What you can tell them is, yes, there is a monster under that bed, but as long as I put this, this cabbage right in this spot, it can't come out. So, yes, anti-science. When science is telling you something that you really find very inconvenient, and that is the history of, of global warming and the changes that we are certainly already seeing around us. First of all, it was denial. It cannot be happening. Now there is grudging admission as things flood and, and uh, droughts kick in and food supplies drop and uh, the sea level rises, there, and the glaciers melt big time. You can't deny that it's happening, but you then have to pretend that it's nothing to do with us. So we don't have to change our behavior. That's the thinking around that. And that can get very entrenched until people see that by trying to solve the problem, jobs can be created and money can be made. And that will be the real tipping point in, in public consciousness in this country. Other countries are already there. Norway, which is an oil state, is a huge green country because they know that the fossil fuel thing is going to run out. So they are already preparing for that. There's a concept in psychology, in social psychology, known as motivated perception and motivated reasoning. And it's basically the idea that you will see the world as you want to see it. Right. We have tremendous flexibility in the way we perceive the world. I'll give you an example of this. There's, there's a phenomenon known as the butt brush effect. Right. And when you watch people when they're in stores, if the store has narrow aisles, and someone brushes by them and happens to brush their butt as they go by, they will, this happens more to women, but also to men. If they're looking at merchandise, say they're, they're going through a rack of clothes, they'll very quickly, within maybe 30 seconds for many of them, stand up and leave the store. Right. And when you approach them outside the store and say, I noticed that you just left the store, what happened? They will confabulate. They will say, oh, I just remembered that the dog was at home and I need, they will come up with all sorts of fascinating reasons. Right. But what's consistent among all these people who leave is that they were just brushed. They don't have the intuition. They don't have the, the sense of the fact that that's driving them. Right. But they have such tremendous cognitive flexibility and we all do as humans that we will make up something that will explain what's going on in a way that's pleasing to us. So we'll come up with reasons. 
That's what's happening with, say, global warming. We will come up with good reasons why the way we see the world and the way we want to see the world is still consistent with whatever evidence is in front of us. And that's where the flexibility comes from, this ability to tell a tale that still preserves whatever it is that's, that's cherished and that's really important to me, while still being, as far as I'm concerned, consistent with the evidence. Yeah, no, I mean, it's really, it's very interesting because I, you know, I've noticed this particularly with purchases, like especially big purchases, people like when they buy a car or they buy a new house in a neighborhood or whatever, yeah. they will go through incredible logical backflips to explain to you why that was the best thing that right. they could possibly have done no matter and be completely impervious yeah, to any alternative, you know. It's pr pretty profound. I mean, this is an old idea in psychology. Yeah, it's, it's post-decisional dissonance is this idea that let's say you're trying to choose between two cars. Right. You're looking at the Honda and the Toyota. And as far as you're concerned, they are very, very difficult to choose between. You right. agonize over it. If you choose the Honda and someone asks you a week later, what do you think of the Honda and the Toyota? You'll forget how similar they seem to you and how difficult it was to tell, tell them apart. And you'll say, oh, the Honda is so much better. And you'll start to misremember how much you like that Honda over the Toyota. Right. Because you've chosen it, dissonance kicks in. It feels uncomfortable that you chose something but had to give something up that was really appealing. And the only way to reduce that unpleasantness, that state of dissonance, is to tell yourself stories that make it seem like, in fact, actually they're not that close together. Now that I have the Honda, I see the world as it really is. It turns out the Honda had this great cup holder that the Toyota didn't have, and it made my life so much better. I mean, that's sort of sad to me as a, my grandfather was a microbiologist. Mm -hmm. You know, I come from a family of scientists and doctors and more, more or less rational people. And, you know, you, you want to believe that you kind of, you, you look at the facts, right. you try to look at the preponderance of opinion within the institution of the people who know the stuff, sure. you know, and then, and to think that the only way to really get through to us is, you know, backdoors of self-interest or the kind of thing, you know, Margaret Atwood was saying, yeah. like, yeah, we'd like to be independent of, you know, of Con Ed, so right. we're happy, you know. It's all about what's, uh, what's most advantageous. I mean, the, the model of science doesn't really work for humans at large. It, I don't even know that it works for science, but it certainly doesn't work for people. This model where you say, here's the thing that's interesting. I have a hypothesis about it. I think that there's more theft on sunny days. Right. And I'm going to go and test that, and I'm going to go and do some experiments, and I'm going to be agnostic about the outcome until I find that that's true or that's false, and I'm going to try and eliminate any potential alternative explanations. At the end of this process, I will tell you whether that is true, or the whether the evidence is consistent with that, that idea or not. Right. And that's the scientific approach. That's the scientific method. It makes a lot of sense for science. It just doesn't work for people. There is almost nothing that we hold dear <laughs> that we treat as that question. We don't hold it as a sort of question mark that we're willing to entertain all options about and all ideas about before we draw a conclusion. Yeah, and that's probably the case whether or not you have scientific thinking as a core value. Absolutely. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't matter. Scientists <laughs> are some of the worst people when it comes to this stuff. Right, right, right. <laughs> Um, Adam Alter, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks so much for coming on Think Again. Thank you for having me. It was, uh, it was great to be here. And Adam's new book, once again, is Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. Thanks so much. Thank you. Um, and that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And... We have lots of variety coming up for you in the coming weeks. And someone recently wrote in to tell me that 
that's one of the things that they like about the show, the, the surprise of not knowing what the topic is going to be and what the guest is going to be all about from week to week. So I'm going to keep that under my hat, but wanted to let you know that I'm consciously thinking about that. I'm trying to introduce variety into the topics and, you know, change it up frequently enough so that, so as to help your brain and my brain make those kinds of interesting creative connections that happen across unlikely synaptic gaps. So lots of interesting stuff coming up in the coming weeks, and I hope you can be there. And if you're liking what you hear on the show, please take a minute to rate or review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Um, it's That's been accelerating recently, and it's made a major difference. We're getting more and more listeners, which is great because growth basically means that we're going to be able to continue bringing you this show, which I would like to do forever, if possible. 